as an industry, we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures. But there's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James, and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games, as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Matt Smith, current producer at Friend and Foe Games. So join us as we explore his journey. So today I'm joined by Matt Smith. Matt, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. And this is Dev Diary, a series where we kind of go through developers from all around the industry, their stories and what they've experienced and gone through to lead to this particular point. And I'm going to lead off with the same question that I always do. What was your first gaming experience? What were some of those early games that you played through your potentially childhood years or whenever that might have happened to be? And so the first one I can, the very first one I can remember is, is a racing game that I don't remember the name of on my dad's PDP-11 that he built, uh, which is, yeah. it, it looks, if you look at it sideways, it just looks like a bunch of rotating bars on the screen, but it's like, a, you know, it's like one of those old monochrome games where you're, it's sort of stripes on the road that represent the road, and it's got this cool perspective thing going on. Um, that's the first game I remember. The first game I actually remember playing was Castle Adventure, which is an ancient, like, two basic game on, uh, and I think that was on the, a regular PC, some kind of a 8088 yep. maybe. Um, but so like that, then those that was like back, I don't know, 1980, probably 1985. Yeah, okay. Uh, something like that. But the ball was starting to get rolling at that point for the, for gaming as a whole. So yeah, not a bad time to get in. Yeah, and I, and from there I went to stuff like I mean basically mostly mostly PC gaming. I had a hard time. I didn't get a console when I was a kid, so I played stuff like King's Quest or Space Quest or, or Wing Commander, things like that on the PC. Um, I mean, they're they're all prominent games that I you know I've heard a few stories people talk about who kind of well, I guess grew up in the same sort of uh, window. There, they're the same sorts of games that get mentioned by them as well. So mm. seems like you're in some good company. <laughs> well, I mean, there were the, yeah, they're interesting games. I think it's, it's funny how how that mode has almost completely died out with the exception of like the Wing Commander game. You don't find games like graphical adventure games like the King's Quest games anymore. Yeah, um, I mean, it was good to see King's Quest come back. What? Three, four years ago, I guess. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The the, the Activision kind of yeah, backed one, I think it was. Fairly but, odd gentleman, right? But they, they, yeah, they made, a, they made a version of that. But you are right, though. Those sorts of games are few and far between these days. Yeah, I mean, the Telltale sort of tried to tried to re, reignite it, I guess. But it's a different interaction mode with the Telltale game. It's not the same kind of thing at all. Yeah, it was. It is very different. There's, there's, you don't necessarily need to think in the same way that you once did. Very mm-hmm. different. Like it was still there, but the way you kind of process the experience was very different. Mm-hmm. So, was there a game at all at any point through your life that you can kind of identify as the game that maybe helped consolidate everything in your head? That okay, ga- like games are something I want to be involved with, either as a consumer or um, as we are stand today, a developer. Mm, I would say the first the first game that really left a big impression on me, like to the point where where it kind of consumed my thoughts, was probably Pirates, the Myers Pirates. Uh, which I was playing on like a school computer lab on a Mac, I think. Uh, and that was my first exposure, I think, to real sort of systems-heavy games. And those are the kinds of things yeah. that tend, tend to dominate at least my head. Um, but that I was pretty young. It was like, I think that was maybe 11 or 12. Uh, and it didn't really occur to me that I could I could make games as a, as a profession until a lot later. I, was, I kind of just felt, I kind of got into this... Um, Got into making games, not necessarily as like a like that I wanted to do it necessarily. I started, I studied computer science in college, but I, 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 I got into programming because I, I thought I wanted to make games, but also because I come from a really sort of tech savvy, tech heavy family, and that was sort of just yep. a natural natural evolution. I didn't want to do electrical engineering because it was really hard, um, <laughs> and uh, you know my dad's an electrical engineer, and, and the math was too much for me. It, probably still is too much for me now um look i I'm, I'm personally a maths teacher and i i see some of the stuff that kind of goes on in some of those those sub strands and it still blows even me away so yeah it's, it, it's difficult it's like you've got to really i mean now that i've spent a lot of time programming and, and that's a relatively mathematical mode of thought it might not be as hard to, to get into it but then then i'll pick up like a linear algebra book and i'll start looking through all this stuff again and it's still just really like it's a lot of effort to get into that um, yeah. mode of thinking and, and, to, and especially for solving problems in, in that space it's like you really have to you, you have to be able to think really laterally like really 
effectively in this. Uh, it, when you get like a, a couple times in my life, I've practiced it and I've gotten good at it, and it's really fun to be able to do that. But but then um, it's not what I actually do for a living, so I inevitably forget it. And, I mean, my brain's like a sieve, so. No, you, you hold on to what you need to and whatever else can go. I think the, there was a good line in The Simpsons, something about that. I don't remember, though. So was the was the path towards games development fairly clearly defined at that particular point? So you spoke about you know what you went through studying, or was it did it take a little while to find your way into that into that stream? I guess. I mean, when I when I realized I could I could actually do it, like I could actually make games, was I, I managed to get an internship at Crystal Dynamics in college. Uh, I was working yeah. at Soul Reaver Two uh, for a couple of months okay. at Crystal Dynamics, and uh, that's when I think I, it, it occurred to me that this was. A profession that wasn't just populated by immortals, but by actual people, and there were actual people doing actual work, and it wasn't. It was something that I could I could get into myself if I if I sort of tried. And then um, uh, I was having trouble. I basically decided I wanted to try to do that as a as a as a job when I got out of school, and I just sort of looked around. I wound up having to move up to Seattle, uh, to, up to Washington. I was originally from the Bay Area in California. Yeah. Um, and I wound up having to move up to Seattle to find a, a job up there. But, you know, from there, it was basically, from there, it was just sort of, that, that's what I started to do. I started out as a programmer. And so how long did you actually spend at uh, Crystals? You obviously spoke about how it was an internship. Um, how long did that actually last in the end? It was two or three months, I think. Uh, it wasn't that long. It was fun, though. It was like a couple of really interesting things that I got to got to do. As a, as a college student, especially, you don't get, you don't get to look at, Especially at, at that time of uh, the industry, getting that kind of a look inside how games are made would have been pretty rare, I think. Um, yeah, the, the getting to know how the sausage is made sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I got to, I think I worked on an animation compressor and on a, on a texture mapping thing, um, which I was I tried to do some fancy uh, filtering for texture map uh, cleanup, which was way more than, than was necessary and took way too long, so that was kind of a bust, but. You know, that's my dad's sort of signal processing background. He, he, he was throwing all sorts of weird ideas at me at the time. Um, and then, yeah, and, and just some other stuff. I did a little bit of level scripting. There's like a level in there with some moving pillars that I, uh, I, I, did, I scripted that to set up some gameplay. It was a, it was a nice sort of all-around experience, and, it, and I think it showed me that it was like uh, interesting. It was an interesting type of work, and it was something that I could yeah. see myself being... Um, relatively decent at. And so where did the journey lead from there? Where, where did you end up next? Because I, I know you've got some credits in terms of like EA Japan and PopCap, but I assume were they, the, were they the next step or was there some stuff in the middle there? No, I mean, when I, when I after the Chris Dynamics internship, I went up to Seattle. I was working at a company called Amaze Entertainment, which um, they were doing mostly movie license games. So I was doing, they had like an engine that they built for X like sort of PS2 gen stuff. And oh, so yeah, I was, okay. I was working on basically PS2 gen movie license titles. Uh, and there was a lot of them at that at that particular stage. Yeah, it was, I mean, there was a really enlightening conversation that, like, I was, we worked on a Shrek game at one point, which was, uh, oh, yeah, it was okay. probably actually one of the better games we made. And uh, at one point, the, a guy from DreamWorks was there. Uh, Activision, I think, was publishing the game at the time, but there was a guy from DreamWorks came in to sort of see, to see the development and and see how things were going. And uh, this guy from DreamWorks was like, yeah, we're really excited about this game. You know, we've got the lunchbox, we've got the backpack, we've got the video game, you know. And so in his mind, the movie was getting fully merchandised and uh, the video game was just sort of like a, you know, a fancy, fancy lunchbox. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, okay, that's... Um, and how, how does that sit with, with you and presumably some others there to hear comments like that? I, I mean, from part of it, you just feel like the guy's out of touch and doesn't necessarily understand. Um, but then again, he probably understands a lot better. Like, they have a pretty high view of, of their business at that point. They probably know what the previous track video games did in terms of revenue and what how that stacks up against other merchandising opportunities or whatever. Um, obviously, as someone who makes a game, you feel like a lot more craft goes into a video game than a lunchbox. But having never <laughs> yeah. having never made lunchboxes, it's, I feel like it would be uh, it would be it would be a little bit. Um, uncouth to make that claim we'll we'll see we'll see i'm sure i'll try and get someone who makes lunchboxes in at some point and i'll <laughs> i'll get back to you when i get their information their feedback 
Yeah, I mean, well, there's uh, guys here, in, there's guys here in Japan, right, who make like uh, scissors or whatever, and they're and they're, you know, some of the best people in the world are making scissors, and their scissors cost like ten thousand dollars or something like that. So you can definitely put craft into right. something that looks simple. There but, can be finer edges to it, I guess. Yeah. My guess is that the Shrek lunchbox isn't seeing that level of uh, dedication. No, probably not. N- not when they're probably retailing at, what, $5 a piece afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, where, where did things kind of lead from that stage? Um, so, I mean, after working for a while on those those uh, license titles, I kind of got, uh, I was kind of getting sick of it. Um, I started looking around for other stuff. I found these, this crew of dudes who were making uh, this really small company of guys. Was, I think it was like two dudes at the time. They were making uh, downloadable games for SPLA, Xbox Live Arcade, which at the time yeah. was just sort of taking off. It was sort of uh, so the, I, I joined up with them. It was a company called Gastronaut Studios. Um, they made uh, I don't know if you remember Small Arms for Xbox Live Arcade. Oh yeah, yeah, the, the name rings bells. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. It was sort of like a side. It was like a side view kind of arena battle. Uh, sort of like, sort of like Smash Brothers with guns, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, okay. probably probably the best a good way to describe it. And that game was kind of a big hit, I think. And they made some, they did pretty well off of that. So I came on board to help them do their follow up game, and they had a bunch of sporting work. Um, so it was just the four of us, like in the back of a room. Uh, it was uh, we were working, you know, 2008, 2009, basically right around the financial crisis. Um, the guys in the front room were like famous hedge fund people that showed up on CNBC all the time, like in this little office that we'd rented. And oh, yeah, one, okay. one day they just stopped coming into the office, and that's when we knew things were probably going to get bad. Yeah, it's probably a telltale sign <laughs> at that point. But uh, we did we, we did pretty well. We released a game called Gel Set and Match, which I don't think that many people played, but it was pretty fun. It was like an action, sort of like this avatar-driven match-free game, um, which was pretty fun, I think. And uh, we also did a bunch of porting for Xbox Live games for PopCap. We did the Peggle Xbox Live game. We did... Uh, Game called Feeding Frenzy Two that, that not that many yes. people know. Oh, okay, okay cool. Um, Familiar with that one, yeah. We did Feeding Frenzy Two. We did. Uh... Oh, and Peggle's huge. And Peggle is huge. We all love Peggle, so. Yeah, and we did the we did this multiplayer mode that the guy, the founder of Popcap, put a bunch of work into this, or the founder of Pegashinop put a bunch of work into this multiplayer mode called Peg Party from Peggle on Xbox, which was like the first multiplayer mode, like network multiplayer mode the game saw. Um, and we did one other game that's escaping me at the moment that's what it might might come back to you shortly yeah um so then so then i guess the the journey starts to to head towards japan would that be about right or are we still a little way away from that we got bought well we got basically acquired by popcap so we could do their xbox port because at the time the xbox 360 arcade i think was a pretty solid platform and so we wound up doing the Plants vs. Zombies, like the same team basically became part of PopCap and we did the Plants vs. Zombies Xbox Live Arcade for it. Oh, yes, okay. Um, this, that one had like a little, co- a couple of co op multiplayer modes in it. And even a verse mode that had this crazy verse mode in it. It was pretty cool. Uh, it was a lot, that was a lot of fun. We spent a lot, we, we took a long time to do it because that was sort of the PopCap way. Uh, and I mean, that was, that was, uh, PopCap at the time was a really fertile place for, for uh, creative development, for, for game design, and, and, and just for level of quality things like that um around the same time i got married and my wife is japanese so we got we were living in seattle at the time we got married there but we decided we wanted to try living in japan so we started sort of setting things up for that uh eventually i basically said i was going to leave and and move to japan and uh, an opportunity came up where i could work for popcap as sort of like in a different track not as a programmer but as a producer like assistant producer on, on a game they were making out there and I was like well why not better than better than trying to teach English or something and so yes. you know we, I moved out to that Japan that has its own challenges yeah moved out to Japan we were doing the uh, plant, it was actually Plants vs. Zombies for Nintendo DS that was being made in Japan so I was sort of I worked on that and I was using the fact that I knew Plants vs. Zombies pretty well to kind of guide that uh, development that game wound up doing pretty well I think the DS version wound up doing pretty well so we did it we pulled up a couple okay. more DS game. We pulled up another DS game. We did Zuma DS. Uh, Zuma DS didn't do quite as well. Um, but then we got bought out by EA and we started to sort of ramp things up. We did a couple of sort of Japan only projects. We did this crazy Japan only Bejeweled game. It was like a Bejeweled RPG. Uh, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it was called Bejeweled Legend. It was a, that's, a, it was, um, 
yeah, it was it was really kind of I'm a crazy scribbling thing. Scribbling some notes here now. I'm yeah, you won't one. you won't be able to find it. It was tied to the Gree network. Gree at the time was like doing feature phone kind of browser games. Uh, oh, okay. They were, yeah. they were making money hand over fist doing what what you could barely consider games. They're basically websites, right? And um, they're really just very simple stuff. With, but the but the thing the thing about those games is they're extremely addictive. They have all these addictive mechanics in it, and they were making. A lot of money off of that stuff, you know. It was like where the gotcha was basically uh, pioneered was yep. was in those types of games, and uh, we so we were sort of trying to the feature phone era was just starting to end, and we we everyone was transitioning to smartphones, and and we sort of did this deal with Gree where we would put this the Jewel Legend game out on their network, but on smartphones, and um, but there's a reason you don't see any any schemes like that anymore because you can't really ride your own platform on top of the iOS app store. It's not really feasible. Yeah, Apple uh, doesn't really allow anything like that, do No, they? it's more explicit now than it was back in the day, but uh, it was basically, I mean, also the, the mechanics of it just don't work. Like, you, have, you wind up having to have, make people sign up for like another network after they've downloaded the app and most people just aren't going to do that. But yeah. that was, we just learned that lesson sort of painfully. Um, and I don't think I think before before we decided to try to do a, a version that would just see a wide release, we we um, some other opportunities came up, and we kind of merged a little bit more closely with the EA Japan mobile studio that was there at the time. That was uh, they they had actually made a browser game for FIFA uh, on, on the Green Network, and they made a ton of money off of that, and they were looking to spin up their own operation to to sort of leverage that success. I think. And so uh, we, we kind of integrated more tightly with the EA uh, office that was there in Japan. It was, it was uh, by coincidence, only like two blocks from the office, the PopCap office. But at that point, PopCap Japan kind of had ceased to exist, and we were all just EA employees. Merged into, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's a process that, that, that happened a couple times elsewhere in the world as well. But uh, I think we might have been one of the earlier, earlier offices to get sort of shuttered and folded into EA. Um, and then uh, we, I, I wound up working on this this game called Tetris Monsters, and basically taking over the project, which was a that was a Tetris RPG uh, that again only came out in Japan. Um, yeah, it was okay. sort of like Puzzle and Dragons, but with Tetris as the puzzle. Um, oh, yeah, okay, yep. And that was pretty fun. It was a really cool experience. We did this. Uh, I mean, working with the te- working with the Tetris company is cool. They're really great people. Uh, we, we did a couple of interesting sort of new mechanics. Um, basically, the, the game worked by you would clear lines and they would sort of stack up on the bottom. And then uh, because that reduces the amount of space and then you, at any time you could sort of tap the stack of stuff that was stored at the bottom to trigger an attack that would be powered up by how big your stack was. So there was a risk reward thing there where yeah, the bigger the, the stack of lines at the bottom is, the more powerful your monsters would be when they attack. But... Um, you're also running out of space to play Tetris in the in the top part, and if you sort of go over, if you, so if you it's juggling that, that yeah. balance, I guess. Yeah, it was pretty. It was a pretty cool little. Was, the game itself was pretty engaging, actually, and and it had that a, a kind of a nice little aesthetic. Um, we, yeah, and, and, it, and it did relatively well, I think. You know, like at the, at the same time that it launched, there was a game called Puyo Puyo Quest out, which was basically. Yep. More or less the same thing, but with Puyo Puyo instead of uh, instead of Tetris. And the the tricky thing about I mean I think Puyo Puyo Quest is still around, right? Like they were they just were way better at operating the game than we were. And uh, but Tetris, but the, the Tetris game because of kind of the way that we had set up some it's kind of the way that it was it was being run and, and and a bunch of other stuff that I probably can't probably shouldn't talk about it. It, it wound up being a little too, a little too awkward to continue. Uh, continue going until we move towards shutting it down. And uh, around the same time, I was getting kind of uh, worn out with EA. Uh, I mean, it, basically, I, I, I kind of wanted to do something else. And so I left uh, I quit EA in 2014. And, um, and that's where Friend and Foe came along? Yeah, I, I met these guys at, at, uh, at, at some parties. And they were sort of like, we need... They kind of needed someone who could who could produce and who could program, and I can kind of do both of those things. And so uh, we wound up we collaborated a little bit, and then we wound up making it a more kind of formal partnership. And then uh, 
and I think we formally founded the Friend of the Foe about a year after that. Yeah, so I actually remember, I, I remember it vaguely, but I stumbled upon it when I guess when I was doing a little bit of research for this for this episode. Mm. I, I do remember, I think you, you spoke at TGS one year, you were talking about some mobile games and bits and pieces at that stage. Was this still the stuff that was going on at EA that you were referring to? Or? Oh, like the Pachapika thing a bit at TGS? Like yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, I mean, that was when I was still trying to figure out my own thing, right? So. Um, oh, okay, so that was totally standalone from all those things, okay? Yeah, I mean, I, the, the, my, my sort of working theory at the time was that I, the, the first thing I had to do was quit EA, and then the second thing I would do was figure out what to do next. Um, yeah, and okay. I was just, you just knew you needed to get out. Yeah, I, needed, I wanted to get out. I wanted to try making my own games. Uh, it's, it's, you know, like um, working at a big company has its advantages and disadvantages, and I want to kind of, I wanted to explore the other end of the pond, you know. Um, and so I had like some ideas I was cooking up. I had like a little number game I was trying to work on. I had a really, I still have a really terrible prototype for it. Um, which, by the way, like I don't think number games are particularly like outside of things like threes that have super intuitive rules like doublings um yes i think i think numbers are, are very very tough to work into your into your uh, casual game but uh yeah i mean people get a little bit intimidated by them yeah right and and i was trying to do this sort of like auction based game that didn't really it didn't really pan out but it was all good it was it was a fun experience to work with and uh, and i only worked on it for a couple of months before the friend of both things started uh to take off and we were working on Bane. So, so um, friend info. How many people actually are there at the at the studio or on the team? Um, so the the sort of active development roster for Bane is four people. Uh, the company is five people, and we have one or two collaborators. Like uh, we have a guy who helps us with some sound, and we have uh, yep. we had we had uh, the guys from this company called Plastic Burn were helping us with QA. Um, couple of people doing localization and stuff like that but, but the, yeah understood people kind of drift in and out yeah the for, active team for different roles and yeah the active team is four people so was Vane what well, well, you know I suppose the, the time that we uh, sat down to do this and the time that you the listener will catch this the game's only about a week away now hmm. um, so was was Vane uh, something that came I feel like I remember the game for oh, when, when was it first announced because I reckon I think I might have Cotton uh, onto something, or maybe it's spotted on game trails or something back in the day. Yeah, like a little bit before TGS, um, like sometime in, in middle of 2014, some gifs popped up on NeoGAF. Um, oh, yeah, okay. I, I don't actually know how that happened. This was before I joined up with the guys here, but they yeah. were working on a prototype, like an early prototype for Vane. Some gifs found their way to NeoGAF, and at the time, the, the hype for and the the Last Guardian was kind of unreal, and we had the two. There were two guys from the Last Guardian team that had quit and were working on Bane, um, along with the rest of the guys here. And so that there, there was like an initial burst of pretty serious hype from that. Uh, and then, um, by the when it, when I came on board, they were they were talking to a couple of different people to try to secure some funding to do the game for real, because the yep. basically the stuff that had surfaced was like. Was just the earliest. Was just really yeah. It was just really early conceptual stuff. It just happened to look pretty good and look almost like the like evocative of a full game experience. Um, and uh, you know, the game kind of because the game started with this burst of attention from from what was basically an atmosphere expressed in a GIF. Um, that kind of was our our watchword, I think, for the whole almost, the, or that was kind of our reference point for almost the whole development, which is really difficult. Um, not it's. So that's a really kind of counterintuitive way to try to make a game, um, and I think the game. To, well, but anyway, so that's that's uh, yeah, that's basically what happened. When I came on board, we were looking for we were looking for some money, and we had to kind of put a put a, put a more solid demo together. So we did that. We went to GDC. We sort of found a partner to fund it, um, and then we just we we had our heads down working for the last. Four years on, on, on the game, and uh, yeah, it's been a it's been a crazy road. And now it's finally here. So, what are some of those? Or nearly, nearly here. Hmm. Uh, what are some of those influences? Now, obviously, you you do have people coming across from um, uh, their team eco time, and hmm. as you as you rightly said, there were you know people that cottoned onto the game because of that 
Last Guardian sort of fever that was going on. That's certainly how I kind of first cottoned onto it. Now I'm not a NeoGAF yeah. um, person at all, but even I stumbled upon it and kind of latched onto it for that same sort of idea. But were there were there many influences um, for that game like of other the other games that influenced the game in some way? Mm, I think I think that that there were pretty like the team uh, as a team we we're, we're, we really wanted sort of like try things out on our own and and I think a lot of the time like we kind of threw out the toolbox when we were making this game there's not a ton of we didn't put a bunch of anchors in the ground for other games to serve as reference points um, I, I certainly think that the that some of the philosophy of uh, Ueda-san's development style has carried over into the way we're making the game just in the sense that we're yes. really prioritizing atmosphere we're really prioritizing sort of a mood over almost anything else. But then there's a lot of stuff that's quite different. I mean, we don't have, like, I think when people play the game, they'll see that it's not quite the same focus on on um, relationships that, that in a way the way the game would have. Um, yeah, okay. But, uh, you know, like, I, I think that, that really, like, a lot of our inspiration comes from sort of visual, um, visual mood, reference like uh, there's some surrealist painters some polish surrealist painters uh there's some surreal there's some sort of uh conceptual architects there's like it's all sort of like i would say landscape and uh, structural stuff that's really inspired us for the most part um and that's this the, where the game is sort of about exploring this really strange world and and that world is really kind of the main character almost um and so as you're you're going through it and you're exploring it it's it's unfolding in these un- these unknown these sort of unexpected and really weird ways. And uh, in terms of like we we've just tried to get a lot of uh, reference for for surreal spaces or for spaces that that look interesting and feel interesting to us um, when we're, when we're putting a game together. But like it's it's hard to say that it's necessarily inspired by too many other games in that sense. I think. Uh, is it more just one of those sort of things where you, you've each individual has kind of brought their own experiences and that's what's influenced the game as opposed to a particular game or games across the journey that have yeah I mean been, uh, that have served as guides. There's a lot of that. Like for example, like one of the things that, that I worked on for Zane was the was the bird system, like the bird flight. That's kind of like yeah one of, one of my wheelhouses for the game. There weren't a ton of references to, to figure out like hey what is what's good bird flying feel like you know like um playing through journey journey doesn't have the same journey has sort of a jumping system but not really a flying system uh so we kind of had to just piece it together and and we, were, we had one thing that was there with uh like we had one thing from the early demo and kind of refining that into basically just taking some some very rough stabs at what a physical approximation might feel like and then trying to tweak it until it met our needs was sort of like, and then we wound up with this thing that, that you know, it feels pretty good, I think. Um, and I think a, bu- a bunch of the game came in a similar type of development where we sort of knew kind of what we needed to do, but we didn't know exactly how we were going to go about doing it. And then in the process of, of looking into potential solutions and looking into ways that we would, we would complete a particular uh, part of the game, we, we stumbled across uh, a mechanic that felt really good or we found something that we figured with a little more polish would feel pretty good. And it was just a very iterative process in that sense. And now you're at a point where the game's ready for release, and that must feel pretty good, I assume. Yeah. It's, After I mean, you know, years and years. It, obviously, it feels feels super awesome to be done with the game, or to be almost done with the game. It's also super terrifying. Uh, we're, um, you know, we're a small team, so that the... the, the, the sensation that we've missed something or that there's something that we've, we've overlooked is kind of overwhelming like you know we can't, yeah, yeah, we can't kind of be everywhere on the, making a game is a really kind of a big surface area of a, of a is a piece of software that has a big surface area and, and it's hard really hard to test and and so at least from from, from my perspective I'm, I'm sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop on that front but <laughs> um uh, you know i'm we're fairly fairly you know, we wouldn't be releasing the game if we didn't think it was going to be, if it was stable and was going to be, and was going to be good. It's just, that it's, uh, you know, this is our our game, this is our company, and, it, and it's hard not to be. Uh, we well, got an emotional investment in the in the game. Yeah, it's a little a little bit worried. You know, it's going on a little bit nervous, but uh, I think it'll be good. It's it's there seems to be some interest in it, which is really 
really flattering, very humbling. Uh, and uh, yeah, we just have to kind of tighten down a couple more screws, make sure everything's set to launch, and then and then uh, we'll probably have to move pretty fast if, uh, if any issues come up, but then there's some stuff that we'll probably want to do afterwards. So do you see or hear of many people that are who cottoned onto the game in that period that we were talking about before where things popped up on Neogaf for mm. the first trailers, you know, because th- that was quite some time ago. Are there, st- do you still, just anecdotally, I guess, do you see lots of people that are still tracking the game, following the game? Have you had that sort of dialogue with people over the course of the years or yeah. have other members of the team had that sort of dialogue? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people, we've had a lot of fans who have been really excited for the game over a long period of time. And I mean, the, the, just looking at like uh, responses to our Twitter and the responses to our, our social media posts, there's a lot of people who are like, I've been waiting for this game for years, I can't wait till it's finally out. Uh, there seems to be a lot of interest still in it. And, I mean, I'm sure we've lost a lot of people over the years. Uh, you know, there was, we, we announced, um, we sort of announced the game, that a game was coming soon, at PSX 2016, I remember. So we were at yep. the Sony's PSX show, we had like a, an awesome like showcase spot in their, in their showcase, and, and we were like, yeah, the game's coming out in 2017. That was kind of a lie. Or not a lie. It was we, we, we didn't make it. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, I was going to say, the, I'm, I'm sure you wouldn't have lied. The intent probably would have been there to get it out there. Yeah. Point, it, we, 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 it, get, game development's a fickle thing. Sure. And, and you always, it's always like the, the last mile looks a lot shorter from the distance than it winds up being. Um, yeah. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, we announced that the game was coming out then, and there were like a, a couple of people who were uh, looking at it on streams or whatever who were super excited for it. I remember who were like, "We've waited like however many years, three years for this, and two years or something like that." And now there's finally some news. Uh, and those, a lot of the, some of those people don't even stream anymore, you know. Like, so there's like a lot of turnover. That the, the industry moves really fast these days, like all parts of it. And so the fact that there's still a couple of people, there's still like anecdotally some people on our Twitter or on our on our YouTube or wherever. We're talking about how excited they are is is pretty humbling and and, and super exciting. We're, we're super grateful for that kind of uh, interest. So, what was it like for you and the team? Because ultimately, from the from the announcement at the kind of funny games showcase uh. to now, it's it's a pretty short sort of window there between that announcement of a date and the actual date arriving. Um, what sort of discussions or deliberations kind of went on behind the scenes to that led to that being the right way? in your minds, to make that sort of announcement and then land on that date? I think for us, the, 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 we decided, I mean, the release date was something we decided for, I mean, a number of reasons went into that. For one thing, you have to kind of put a, put a draw line in the sand and say that you've got to put the game out or else, like, a bunch of, for a game like this, we could kind of be polishing it forever, I think, and there's a bunch of places yeah. where we would where we want to put more time and Without sort of the threat of a looming deadline and the and and you know, it's sort of a a pitiless date to hold you accountable. It's pretty hard to to wrap things up, you know. And, and, and uh, so that was there's also a financial aspect to it. Like we don't obviously didn't have the money to continue making the game forever, and had to sort of look for a way that we could get the game out and and not um, not go bankrupt. Yeah, the idea um, of an infinite pool of money sounds good, but it's not in re- it's not a reality. No, it isn't right, and uh, and I mean that's a, that's also a good thing because it means you you have to you have to sort of wrap things up at some point. Um, and so we, we kind of decided on a release date, and then we were looking for ways to, to promote that. And uh, you know, the, since we've already had some exposure, we didn't necessarily think it was a great idea to come. We thought it would be a, a better idea to come out like. With a relatively short window between our announcement and the release, because you can't, you, you know, you can only drive the, can only drive interest so many times. So, how long ago did you actually identify what that date was going to be? Uh, I want to say, I want to say in September, maybe. Oh, yeah, okay. Was roughly when we figured out that's what the date would be. Yeah, I think in September we. I mean, we kind of knew that we were going to be done, that we would be finishing, uh, that we'd be putting the game out in early 2019. We identified, I think, that we would. Uh, I think we identified January is a good time to put the game out because uh, there's a lot of 
I mean, the the, the marketplace, the market heats is heating up, right? And there's not so much. Uh, yeah, even beginning the end of January, things start to get a bit crazy. Yeah, right. And and we want to make sure, like, our game is not one I think that's gonna. Um, we don't want to go toe to toe with like the big Japanese companies putting out their their games, Resident Evil or Kingdom Hearts, right, or any of those sorts of things. Yeah, we don't want to go toe to toe with uh, Anthem. We don't want to do any of that stuff. We want to have a little bit of time where where our game can kind of exist in its own little space there, and, and you know, ideally, it's a little bit of a, a little bit of breathing room that everybody has you know, in, uh, at the end of the holiday season, and um, you know, Vane's not a, a, a super long game, so it, hopefully, it's a, a little a little palate cleanser for some people before they get into the next uh, next crop of, of giant releases, you know. So then um, the the kind of funny thing came along, and what was that? Just an email to Greg, and all of a sudden, yeah, some, um, you're in, or how how does that sort of, I guess, conversation discussion take place? Um, we were talking to to our colleague, to our friends at, at PlayStation, and they've been super helpful uh, over the course of development. And we were just mentioning that. Um, we wanted to do something like, uh, like, like the game awards or the kind of funny showcase. And, um, the kind of funny one was just was kind of, kind of round up fitting us. And so we just went with it. But kind of funny guys are super, super nice. Uh, I'm looking forward. Yeah, I've, had, I've had the pleasure of meeting them a couple of times. And oh, they've, they've been fantastic. So yeah, I'm looking forward to being able to meet them sometime. Uh, it was a, the, the run up to the showcase was super hectic and there wasn't really like a lot of opportunity to, to talk about anything with them, but, um, Hopefully, once the game is out, everything's a little bit settled. We can, you know, I can uh, meet them at GDC or something. But uh, yeah, no, they, they were super, super nice, and the, they, the showcase itself was kind of was a super, uh, super interesting mix of, of games. I thought like uh, really interesting set of like some scrappy indie titles and some bigger stuff, and, and just all around quirky. And I mean, Vane, Vane is a really weird game, so it was a perfect fit. Yeah, it was it was a very interesting as just I guess an, a consumer of of that show. Um, it was it was quite interesting in the lead up as to what they were going to be showing. So there was some talk about some AAA stuff and the intrigue around the fact that the, the game awards had been a couple of days before, mm. knowing that the the big focus for them still was was independently developed games. So it was really interesting to see kind of the mixture there. And I was I was ecstatic when I saw your game pop up because like I said <laughs> I've been following it for quite some time. But uh, right. and for me, I mean, I I felt like I'd been following it. A decent amount, but even that caught me caught me off guard. So it was it was great. I was, I was really excited as soon as I saw that news. Yeah, I mean that was the, the the we got some advice about how to how to sort of announce the release. You know, was to basically try to go pretty quiet and to try to not you know try to come in with a bang. And so we we kind of worked our asses off on that trailer. And uh, I think that it showed like as a it's a it's a it's the trailer was really. I think a really nice. It shows off the game in a, in a in a kind of a really nice way, and it was it's kind of an unexpected thing, you know. Like it's got this this turn in the middle where the game starts to get weird and dark, and um, you know, and the game itself is kind of like that as well. So it was. It's, but we we ba- the, we basically got this advice saying, you know, just to just take a big shot. Don't don't dribble stuff out. Don't like uh, you know. Especially for us, we're we're a really small team, so we can basically only do one thing at a time. Um, and so it was either it's either we're preparing for the trailer, or we're working on finishing the game, or we're going to yeah. try to market the game. We can't we can't really do more than one thing at any given time. So uh, you know, finding get, getting a uh, the the kind of funny show kind of met up with the timing in, in the pipeline and that as well. Like we we managed to get the trailer done. We went back to finishing the game. Uh, and, and the scheduling kind of worked out. Yeah, the stars just aligned perfectly. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I think a big part of it is you, you have to make that decision, like, hey, we're going to do this thing, and then uh, and then just organize around it, and um, you know, and then and then things tend to fall into place if you if you just sort of take the first couple of steps and then and then keep moving. So I've got one more before we before we start to wind things down. I've got one more. Uh, a game actually that I'd like to ask you about mm. uh, the one that's still ab- well, listed or advertised on the website there called Dangerous Men is there anything you can <laughs> tell us or share with us about about what that is yeah uh, Dangerous Men is, is like our other project right and we've had it on the back burner for some time uh, every so often we'll we'll, uh, we'll take a look at it and we'll spend some time on it but for the last 
Faden, the last time we spent any any super significant development was um, was when we were negotiating kind of the contract for the for the funding for Vane. That took a long time. It took about six six months or something like that. Oh, yeah, okay. And so some of that time we spent working on on basically polishing up this demo for Dangerous Men, and it's this cool uh, sort of retro inspired, but not 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 retro bound. Um, Beat 'em up brawler kind of game with a lot of physics action and lots of crazy stuff happening all the time. It's sort of a cooperative. It's it's like a co. It's basically a cooperative sort of cop cop game where you're two loose cannon cops and sort of the, the, the lethal weapon world uh, trying to clean up the city from this this tide of punks and everything. Sort of feels like late eighties, early nineties. Sort of uh, just just very. The colors are kind of bright. The the tone is pretty light. The action's kind of outsized and kind of out of control um, and so that's like I, you know that might be our next project once we put Dane away uh, it's something that we always like to come back to and it's like the nice thing about Dangerous Men is that it's uh, I think there's some there's some footage of it uh, on the internet somewhere I don't know we showed it once at a Tokyo Indies meetup and, and somebody took a video uh, <laughs> it's always someone yeah and it's um, the nice thing about making Dangerous Men is that it's sort of the polar opposite of Vane and that Vane is very it's a difficult game to develop for because there's this mood that you can't break. You know, there's this sort of atmosphere and this mood that, that if you can manage to enrich it, then that's great. But not everything is going to do that. Some things will take away from it. Um, it's it's kind of got almost this, almost this anti-game feel in a sense that it doesn't. We don't do a lot of really gamey stuff in it, and and we're just yeah. trying to preserve the mood and trying to make sure the players kind of the game doesn't get in the way of players exploring this environment. Whereas uh, Dangerous Men is, is definitely a video game. And a lot of like, if you, if you want to put in like a new gun, put in a new gun. If you want to put in a new a new kick move, put in a new kick move. It's, there's there's not much in the way of like heavy editing that we have to do. Uh, yeah, tonally, they're very different. Yeah, it's and so it's it's a little bit more fun. Like it's a, it's, a, it's a different type of development, I think. And um, and it's, is that is that very refreshing though for you individually um, to have gone for something that's very serious as you were just talking about, and uh, you've got to be very very careful with how you. Um, let Vane express itself to then something like Dangerous Men where you can kind of balls the wall, doesn't really matter, you can have a bit of fun with it. Yeah. Is that refreshing for you? I think it's fun. I think it's 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 obviously a change of pace and it's a different type of uh, it's a different type of development. I think um, that that once we, like, if that's our next project, then my guess is that we'll still like um, any game development project in my experience wine goes through the, the sort of the valley of despair you know where like at one point you're in the beginning and, and everything you've kind of got the game proven out and you can see that it, there's a version of the game that would be finished that would be interesting and and so that you're you're full of enthusiasm you're bright-eyed you're ready to get to it um eventually you'll get uh, bogged down in in, in stuff um, making the game partway through the development and it and it really sucks and it's taking forever and things aren't going the way you planned and 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 it's very easy to get discouraged and with Vane that that period was was, I think about three years uh but um you know and and with Vane also it's like a little bit tough the the final game that was going to come together was kind of this weird delicate thing and and it's hard to see it when you're when you're down in that in that pit but I'm guessing the same thing would happen even with a game like Dangerous Men because it seems to always happen in my experience where uh, for whatever reason you can lose confidence you can lose a little bit of confidence in the game you're making and, and it can oh, be there's peaks and valleys that can happen in anything yeah completely understood yeah so I guess as we wind things down we'll kind of cycle back to you a little bit more so what have been some of your uh, more valuable experiences you kind of or treasured memories that you've kind of built up over the course of your games development journey so far have there been any that really resonate with you at all some particular highlights I think that the biggest thing is just to see people playing playing a game you made. You know, like a lot of the time you don't get to see that very often, especially if you're working at a large company. You're not going to see the users actually. You're not going to see players playing your game. Uh, and it, it's when you see like an actual person playing your game, like when we take Bane to trade shows, like the Bit Summit, or the you know we had some we had uh, we showed it a day a day of the devs, and unfortunately we couldn't go out to, to, to show it there because we were finishing the game at the time, but. Uh, the people who played it, we heard from a couple of people who played it who said they thought it was really interesting. Uh, 
watching how people interact with systems that you made and, and watching them do things that you totally didn't expect, uh, to me that's really interesting, you know, because at the end of the day, like we're making a game, not like a movie or a book. And so it's something that people are going to use and kind of make their own. And yeah. so seeing that process is super, super interesting. It's very, it's very, on the one hand, it's really terrifying to see somebody like start to bend your your the thing you made in, in unexpected ways because you're you're always worried it might break, but it's also really cool to see people come up with their own solutions for stuff and their own ways of playing the game and um, you know sometimes they'll there's the, something you you did like in terms of trying to guide the player will work and you feel like a genius and sometimes it doesn't work at all and you feel like a freaking idiot, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, you know just just that that aspect of giving up the game to, to someone to play. And, and seeing it is, uh, is super rewarding, and it doesn't kind of matter whatever game. Like pretty much, I think every game I've ever seen, I've ever made, watching people play it has been has been super uh, super gratifying. That's awesome. And on the flip side, and slightly more uh, slightly more negative tone with this one, have there been any particularly tough lessons that you've had to learn? Anything that kind of blew up in your face at any of the points of, through your career so far? Have there been anything that's really you've struggled to grapple with that might have gone badly? Mm. There's a lot. I mean, I think like with any professional career, there's you make mistakes and, and, and you try to learn from those mistakes. Uh, I think that, that... And sorry, that's that's kind of yeah, where I was leading towards there. Like, were there any yeah. um, anything that you kind of encountered that yeah, went badly, but you've managed to take a lot from that? I think... So the, the process of, of owning and operating friend and foe is, uh, is sort of an ongoing lesson, I think. It's, it's really difficult to... Um, it turns out to be a lot harder to, to operate it to, to run a company than, than I had thought. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of work that goes into it, um, and it's not just sort of like to me the biggest the biggest issue is that it's uh, uh, a lot of the there's a, like a lot of the stuff that's that's really boring about running a company takes a tremendous amount of energy, like uh, setting up schedules, trying to get people to stick to the schedules, trying to track down money to. to, to that fill holes in your budget. Um, yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine managing the books would be one of the the less enjoyable aspects. Yeah, and I mean, like we usually, I mean, we, we have accountants that do most of the dullest part of that. But you still have to set up a budget. You still have to make sure that you're on that budget. You have to make sure that the game is getting 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 made, and 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 just the the, the simple aspect of trying to get everybody on the same page, uh, especially when you're, you know, when it's your company, when when everybody's. You know, all the uh, all the owners have a significant emotional stake in what's happening, and and you know, it's it's not always easy to get everybody on the same page, and sometimes those conversations can be especially draining. Um, yeah, for sure. And so I think it's just the thing, the one thing I've learned is that it's uh, well, I wouldn't trade this experience for anything, and I, and I'm not particularly looking forward to. I'm not particularly looking to go back into into just being sort of a salaried. Uh, employee at a large company um there are definitely advantages to that because there's you know there's a lot of the weight of the decisions doesn't fall on you and and you don't have to do all this sort of obsessive planning and you don't have to it's not up to you to try to make sure everybody's pointed in the same direction necessarily or um if it is then maybe that's your only responsibility instead of having to do four or five other things at the same time you know? yeah the, the the stakes are very different yeah and it's it's so so I feel like there's a there's a place for each one and uh, the the thing that I'm definitely that I definitely feel more than anything else is that um, wearing so many hats really prevents you from excelling at any of them and uh, that's something that's like uh, obviously if you're someone who takes pride in your craft it can it can be really painful to not be able to perform to the level that you want. Um, to have to like cut corners on on the on the coding you're doing or the programming you're doing or the or the or, or uh, company mentorship or just sort of just any 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 aspect of the way that the company is run um, or the or, or the work that we're doing, you know, because we're all doing five or six different things at the same time, uh, we wind up having to compromise pretty heavily on some important things. And, and you know, as 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 someone who takes a lot of pride in their work, that that's painful. Yeah, it's hard to hard to grapple with, I guess. Mm. So, what does the future hold for you individually from here? So, do you have any kind of short, long term sort of plans in place? I mean, a lot of it really depends on on Vane. I think there's a there's a ton of different roads that that that, that we could take from here. 
and most of them depend on uh, on uh, most of them are contingent upon um, upon the success or failure of pain. Um, uh, my immediate plan, I think, is to try to we're going to try to uh, rustle up another project. We've got maybe dangerous men. Maybe it'll be maybe we'll pull out a prototype or something. We're going to try to find a, a partner to help us fund it, and then we're going to just make another game. Is I think the immediate future, uh, and I think. For, for us at Friend and Foe, that's like that's always sort of been our goal is just to keep making cool stuff and to make sure that we own the stuff that we make. And um, so we're going to try to keep doing that. Uh, I think it's pretty hard to, to say further than that down the line, you know. Um, uh, Things I just, change. Yeah, I mean, I just I just uh, had a child. I just uh, I just had a son, and so my outlook is kind of a little bit different. But I haven't had time to really decompress and. And really map out what that means to be personally. Yeah, the so. intensity of being a new parent. Yeah. I'm actually experiencing that at the moment myself. Oh, so. really? Yeah, congratulations, then. You do. That's, uh, I mean, I, all I can say is that trying to ship a game and trying to, to, to raise an infant son at the same time is, is not recommended. Um, <laughs> it's tricky. You know, do one thing um, at a time. So, so, so vain itself. Uh, maybe a quick rundown here. Uh, when can people get it? Where can they get it from? What should they be looking out for? So, Vane, you, the game's close. Yeah, okay, Vane, you can pre-order it now on PlayStation for the in either the EU stores or the US store. Uh, in the same stores, it'll be available for purchase uh, on January 15th. Although, if you're interested in it, I recommend the pre-order because it comes with a comes with a theme. And in Europe, it also comes with a PS Plus discount, so that's nice. Um, uh, Everyone loves that. Yeah, the game will be out, but the game will be out for 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 purchase on January fifteenth, and then um, I imagine we're just going to keep working on it for a little bit. Uh, well, it'll probably come to other PlayStation regions as soon as we can, as soon as we can do all the paperwork we have to do to get it out in those regions. Um, like I said, we have to kind of do one thing at a time. So, uh, unfortunately, like Absolutely. we really wanted to do a simultaneous Japan release, but uh, and. And, it, and it's not even that hard. It's just that there's some paperwork that I haven't managed to get to. Yeah, understood. And so if uh, people want to do a little bit, because the game is so very close and they'll need to do some research if they're not familiar with it now, mm. uh, where where could people get in uh, touch with, with you or go and actually gather some more information on the game? Yeah, so you can um, check, up, check out our, our website is uh, veingame.co and our our website itself is friendinfogames.com. And both of those places have information on the game itself and, and links to relevant relevant spots. Uh, or Twitter is at friendinfodev. Um, so you can follow us on Twitter where, where we do a lot of... I'm sure we'll be talking about the, the release of our game there. Uh, yeah, and, I, and that's pretty much it. There might, yeah, I think those are the best places probably to look for, for new information. Sounds great. Um, well, Matt, thank you very much for your time today. It's been enlightening. It's been great to learn a lot about Vane, Friend and Foe, yourself, um, and everything that's gone into the process so far. So thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. That concludes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share it with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you would like me to reach out to an interview, then please find me at Paul James Games on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until our next episode, however... That's been Matt Smith's story. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.